Here we go. Hello there. I used to love to watch Frasier. I just thought it was very well written, and I really enjoy the episode that we just watched where they had planned incredibly down to the last detail to open their restaurant, and then it kind of blew up in everybody's, in everybody's face. Have you ever had an experience like that where you have planned something down to the T, you've done everything you know to do, and everything is right, and then it doesn't work right? Uh, back in the day, my wife and I helped start a ministry called Walk Through the Bible. That seminar we're going to do on Sunday nights, beginning two weeks from tonight, will help you to uh, learn the events of the Old Testament in order. Because what happens when most of us read the Old Testament, we get pieces to the puzzle. We get Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Moses and David and Nehemiah, but we don't know where they fit. And so that particular small group, which we hope won't be too small, uh, we're going to take those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and show you the box lid so you know the whole picture of the Old Testament. And by the end of the five weeks, you'll be able to talk your way through the entire story of the Old Testament. You'll know where the major places are and how to get from place to place. And, uh, and it'll be fun. In fact, we'd like you to bring your kids all the way down to at least uh, sixth grade. It's a great family thing uh, as well. And we will have child care for, for the younger ones. Well, when we helped start that ministry, we were in Portland, Oregon. And after the first six months of, of working, we were behind financially. There were five of us. Uh, I'd moved up there from Texas, and we were in Portland. And so we decided after much prayer that God would allow us to do a fundraising event. Now, again, we were very young, and we were trying to figure out how do we do this event, and so we prayed, and we came up with a plan. First thing we needed was a speaker. And so we called one of our mentors. Dr. Howard Hendricks is a guy I've mentioned to you before got his secretary on the phone and said, Hello, Susan, this is the guys from Walk Through the Bible, and we'd like you to have Dr. Hendricks consider coming to Portland, Oregon and doing a fundraising event. And she said two things. Number one, he's never been to Portland. And number two, he doesn't do fundraisers. We prayed. That afternoon we got a phone call. It was Howie himself. Dr. Hendricks said, You know what, men? I believe so much in what you're doing. I'm going to come to Oregon and we're going to do a fundraising event. Click. Next thing we got, check that off the list. We need a place. How many people do we need to have? Well, we couldn't afford a whole dinner because that was very expensive, and we were $15,000 behind back in 1977. That was a whole truckload of money, and so it still is. And so we, uh, we decided, let's see if we can pray about inviting 1,000 people, and we'll have a dessert after dinner, a 7 o'clock to 8.30 kind of event. We printed up tickets. We rented the Civic Center. We sold 1,000 seats to this dinner. The local Christians in Portland were not happy with us. They had tried to get Hendricks to Oregon for years, and we were the ones that did it. We had 1,000 people show up on the night of the dinner. We did a double slide projector multimedia presentation. In our day where we have PowerPoint and all these great video technologies, it's not a big deal. But back in those days, to get two projectors in sync with sound was incredible. And the night came off, a thousand people showed up, Hendricks did his thing, we took the collection, we had envelopes with money and checks, we went back to the office and we added up the money. Now we were $18,000 in debt because the, the event cost us three grand to put on. So we were 15 behind, 3,000 in cost, and we're thinking, you know, God, if you would give us $20,000, that would be so cool. We lost money. We had everything in place and we lost money. We only took in about $2,000. So now instead of being $18,000 behind, <laughs> we're worse. And we, we ask, you know, God, what's up with this? Have you ever asked God that question? 
where you've diligently prepared yourself, gone out to do something for God, and you got hammered. I'm reminded of the Notre Dame football team. (laughs) Diligently prepared for six weeks to play Alabama. Worked their buns off on the football field. Practice, weight room. Had imitation girlfriends. that they didn't even spend time with because they were preparing for the game and they went out there and in the middle of the first quarter that game was over. It's important to me. I had, I, had Notre, I had Alabama in the pool and if Alabama won, I was going to win the pool and there was another guy, if, if, if Notre Dame won and about halfway through the first quarter I just smiled to Gwen. I said, we won this money. It happens. Life happens. Sometimes we do everything we think we ought to do and something wrong takes place in our opinion. You've got a health issue, and you go to the doctor, and you get a protocol, and you're obedient to the protocol. You eat well. You exercise properly. You take the proper medications. You go through treatment. The day comes, and the doctor shows up in the examining room only to find that your situation has gotten worse, if not devastating. You're a parent. You do everything that you can for your child. You provide for them in every way. You pray for them. You pray over them. You encourage. You exhort. You discipline. You find at some point your child has an issue that you have completely no control over. And they're in a big, uh, that's happened to me a couple of times in the last week. You're at work and you've diligently prepared for your vocation and you work at it and there's a promotion available and you apply for that job and you uh, do everything you can to make your boss successful and pray and you're all excited about it and the day comes and instead of you getting the promotion, your company has told you, that your job is eliminated due to downsizing. What do you do when that kind of things happen? What do you do once you've tried to do everything else on your own? And in the Bible, there's a great psalm. And if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 44. Go right to the middle of your Bible. The Psalms is the, is the longest of the books in the Bible. And Psalm 44 says this, For the choir director, a masculine of the sons of Korah. I love the psalms. You know, the word psalmos comes from a Greek word. The word uh, psalmos means literally to be played with the accompaniment of a plucked instrument. So I know we don't have our full band here today, and that's okay. I love what Brian and the guys do and the girls do, but when he's plucking the guitar, that's a biblical thing. These were hymns that were meant to be sung. They were poems. They were put to music, and this particular poem was for the choir director, a masculine of the sons of Korah. And so this is the group that's going to perform the psalm and the people of Israel are going to sing the psalm. And I love the word masculine. When you see that in the psalms, that's a big deal because in the tapestry of poetry that is Psalm 44, there's an outline unlike any other. Masculine means a skillfully written poem. You know, sometimes the writer will take the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and he'll start each verse with a corresponding letter. Rather than this, this masculine is a pyramid. It's really an altar on which the top four lines are written. And in the first part of the psalm, he does what often takes place. He is confident in the Lord. Now, the way that you can determine a, <coughs> excuse me, a lament psalm, whoa, got something in my throat, a lament psalm, and, and almost half of the psalms are laments. That's a good thing for me. It always starts out with the phrase, O God or O Lord. Psalm 22 that Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a lament. In Hebrew, the word lament means to remind, but he's going to have confidence in the Lord in the first ten lines. Then he's going to lay out his reminder 
in the next eight lines, and then he's going to have a protest section on top of which he's going to lay his petition. It's okay to have a lament. It's okay to say, oh God, why did Notre Dame lose? But it's good that you take it to the Lord and you end up in some way praising God, and we're going to find that in every lament psalm, and particularly in this one, there is some element of praise. In fact, the word psalms in the Hebrew is the word tehillim, which means the book of praises. And in every single psalm, even the lament psalms, there are elements of praise. And so this is a masculine, it's a skillfully written psalm, and here's the cool thing. In verse 1, that little line that's above verse 1 is called the superscription, and that's actually verse 1 in the Hebrew. And in our English Bibles, we only have eight verses in this section, but in the Hebrew text, there's actually ten verses. That's how we know it's a masculine. You know, that's what you learn in seminary. I had four years of Hebrew to be able to tell you this. There are ten lines in this first section, even though there are only eight English verses. So let's read them together. In verse 1, it says, O God, there's our lament. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. You spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. And he says, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down (coughs) those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me, but you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put us to shame, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, this is a confidence now, in God we have boasted all day long, we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah, say Selah. Selah, what does that mean? I don't know for sure. I think it means it's a pause for a musical interlude. It's now when the drums would roll and the cymbals would clang and the horns would go, and they would have a brief time to rejoice over what they have just sung. Now, the confidence is great. And where do they get their confidence? The writer of the psalm gets his confidence from looking back to the time when God went to battle with the army of Israel. Particularly, he mentions when God drove the nations out before them. And that has to do with, in about 1400 B.C., the Jews had been in bondage in Egypt. And after they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, God set them free and said, Go take the promised land, but I will fight before you. And so God driving out the nations in these first verses of the psalm, the writer here is looking back and he's reading his Bible. I think that is so cool. Because this is a psalm that is written in about 700 B.C. So he's looking back 700 years into the events of Scripture, and he's saying, you know, God, we have confidence because what you have done for us in the past. We can trust you. You know, look at that verse. For I will not trust in my bow. What do you trust in? See, if you're like me, you trust in you. In Ed, I trust Because if you'll just let me, I can get most things done. I can answer a lot of questions, and I can figure out ways to get from point A to point B, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I've learned this in my years, that the more gifted you are, the more you need to trust the Lord. Because it's God that gets to do the work, and we just get to come along for the ride. As long as I realize I can't control even one thing, 
then it's okay. But when I start being in charge, I, you know, we did this really slick multimedia presentation. We called in Howard. We rented the, the auditorium. We invited people. We did it. That's what got us into trouble in the first place. And so he looks at the scriptures and he says, you know, God, we're good to go here. We have great confidence in you. He has built the foundation to his altar. Now, on the foundation, he's going to lay his lament. And again, the word lament means to remind God. Every lament psalm, and there are about 72 out of 150 are lament psalms, is a picture of somebody getting up and saying, God, hey, remember me. Hey, I'm over here. Hey, God, this is what's going on. Like God needs a reminder. But that's, in fact, what he does. It's a wonderful part of the psalm. In the, in the next eight verses, he says, Yet you have rejected us. Uh-oh. That word rejected in Hebrew is the word to stink. Have you ever walked into a room and there's just a stink there and you just go, Ugh! And that's the picture. God, we walked into battle and you saw us and Ew! you didn't want anything to do with us. You see, there is in the Old Testament a way for Israel to fight a war. Deuteronomy 20 lists all the regulations for holy war. And although we're not told at the beginning of the psalm what is going on here, I believe this takes place during the rule of King Hezekiah. Say Hezekiah. I love that name. Hezekiah was one of the great kings of the southern part of Israel. There were only eight good ones out of 20 over about a 400-year period. And Hezekiah, when he got to power, within a month got rid of all the idol worship and incredible idolatry and immorality that the uh, people had allowed to creep in. But at the time of Hezekiah, the northern part of Israel, called the Ten Northern Tribes, was defeated by the Assyrians. Say Assyrians. The Assyrians were bad hombres. They were worse than Notre Dame's defense. They were awful. I mean, they, they're the most awful people we know of. They had a king by the name of Sennacherib. Say Sennacherib. And Sennacherib, when he defeated a city, he would take the men of the city, he would kill them all and skin them. And he would take the skins and post them around the wall of the city. He would take the heads of the conquered people and stick them on poles and line the streets. We've got all sorts of evidence from history about Sennacherib and the Assyrians. Well, he decides since he defeated the northern part of Israel, he's coming south. And the first cities that he's going to fight against are called the fortified cities. And he goes to take the fortified cities and Hezekiah raises an army. And Hezekiah says, hey, we're going to go fight against the Assyrians and God will do our fighting for us. And they've prepared and they've prayed and they've offered and they've fasted and they've equipped themselves and they went out into the battle. Look what happened. You have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply, literally for nothing, and you have not profited by their sale. In other words, you didn't even make a profit on our defeat. You made us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. So we went out to fight, God. We went out to fight on your behalf. We went out to do your will, and we got hammered. And that's where he's talking about their defeat. Now, not only are they defeated, but the next four lines in the psalm from verses 17, 18, 19. And they're humiliated. I'm sorry, from verse yeah, 14, 15, 16, 17. They're not just defeated, they're humiliated. Look at the next lines. You 
make us a byword among the nations and a laughing stock among the peoples. The word laughing stock in Hebrew is this. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. You know, you hear kids fighting and playing and messing with each other. When, when they really want to pick on you, they, they wag their heads. That's literally a laughing stock is you're going to wag your head at somebody. I got no time for you. You are, you are less than nothing. You've made us that. God, all day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. God, we've not only gotten defeated, we've been humiliated. Have you ever had that experience? While I was in seminary, I coached high school football. That was a great experience, but one of the things that was not easy was we were a brand new program. We had a whole bunch of uh, freshmen and sophomores. We only had three kids that played that were not freshmen and sophomores. We were a JV team. And the first year I coached, we, we had a schedule made out, and people wouldn't play us with their JV team. They wanted to play us with their varsity. Well, sometimes we could talk them into playing with the second string, but often we would go out there, and we were not terrible for a JV team, but the varsity would show up and just kill us. And I, I've coached in games where, you know, we would have the ball, we'd receive the kickoff, and we'd go first down, second down, third down, punt. But it's the middle of the third quarter, and we're down 65 to nothing. So they would get the ball after the punt, and on first down, they would punt it back to us. That's how Notre Dame felt against Alabama. It's not just defeat, it's humiliation. That's how the army of God is at this point in history. They went out to war, they put God's name on the line, they were doing it by faith, they were doing it out of obedience, and they've become a laughingstock. Everyone's laughing at them. They are not just defeated, they're humiliated. Now the next part of this psalm is, in a selfish way, my favorite part. The next part of the, of, of the pyramid, the, the altar, is, is six lines of protest. This is the only place I know of in all of the psalms where this portion exists. And this is where the psalmist is saying... Hey, what's up with you? That's Italian. I grew up in the Northeast. Everybody I knew was Italian. There's an old expression up there. When you've had enough, you say, hey, manaj. No need to learn that word. I really don't know what it means. It just means I've had enough of this. Manaj. So that's the next part of this. I love that. Don't you love the Psalms? He's honest with God. He's going to the source of the issue. and He's saying, God, here's the deal. Remember us. We had confidence in you. Remember our problem, but you didn't remember our problem. So here's, here's the deal. All this has come upon us. But we have not forgotten you. And we've not dealt falsely with your covenant. We've not broken any of the law. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. You know that expression, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. They're in it. Because now Sennacherib and his army is surrounding Jerusalem. And they are surrounded by the shadow of death. The people of God are about to suffer the judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. And they're crushed. The word crushed is the word of a big ocean wave that just destroys you. You ever had that happen? I was body surfing one time, and I know I've got a fat body, but I love to body surf. And, and one wave just came, and I, I, it just got me and just smashed me against the the bottom of the ocean, and I cracked a rib doing that. I'll never forget that, and I'll never do that again. They are protesting. He says, if we had forgotten the name of our God, 
and extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? You know, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God, we haven't even broken the first commandment. If we'd obeyed a false god or followed after an idol, you'd find that out. Remember in the Old Testament when they were conquering the land in the book of Joshua, somewhere around chapter 7? They were, they were going to defeat a city called Ai. Say Ai. How do you spell that? Ai. And they sent their troops to Ai, and they got, they got beaten. And Ai was just a small battle. Well, the reason they got beaten was a guy by the name of Achan, A-C-H-A-N, had stolen some of the idols from one of the tents in Ai, or one of the buildings. And he brought them back and he hid them under his tent. And God found that out. God said, Moses, here's what we're going to do. We've got to find where there's sin in the camp. And they cast lots, and they got to the right tribe, and then they got to the right clan, and then they got to the right family, and then they got to Achan. And Achan was punished for his sin of idolatry. If that's going on, the psalmist says, wouldn't God find this out? But he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as what? Read that with me. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul picks that verse up later in Romans 8. We're going to get there. But before we get there, the psalmist now has built ten lines of confidence. He's placed eight lines of lament six lines of protest, and now the idea behind every lament psalm is he's got something to ask. There's a petition involved. Here's the request. God, here's what I'd love for you to do. Because I have this situation, because I have confidence in your greatness, here's the request. The last four lines. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep? Again, it's a very strong word. Awake is all it means. Just wake up. Why do you sleep? Why Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. And then the last request is this. Rise up. Read this with me. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your what? The word rise up is the same word in verse 5 in the psalm. If you've got your Bible, connect those two. The, the armies against Israel were able to rise up and defeat Israel. And now the psalmist is saying, God, I want you to rise up and you be our help and redeem us. See, it's not about them, it's about God. The psalmist knows God is the one in charge. And he's saying, God, I need you to wake up and rise up and redeem us. The word redeem is the word to put something back into service, doing the job it was meant to do. I've told you this story before, but when I was uh, a younger man, I lived. Here, uh, my parents were here in Lakeland in, in, the, uh, in the 60s and 70s. Hooters was, a, was an Exxon station. And I worked there at nights. I worked days at a machine shop in Mulberry. Anybody here from Mulberry? Thank you for coming. Mayberry. But I'd rush to the gas station by 4 o'clock because it's hard to believe young people, but gas stations used to pump the gas for you and clean your windshield. It was pretty cool. And in exchange for my dollar and 40 cents an hour, we would give these people S&H green stamps. Have you heard of those? Have you heard of those? And you'd get a stamp for every 10 cents that you spent. So you get 10 stamps for a dollar of gas. And back then, gas was about 18 cents a gallon. My boss said, look, I can't pay you more than a dollar 40 a gallon uh, an hour, but you can keep all the green stamps that people don't want. And from that time on, no one ever got a green stamp at night again. 
And about 9 o'clock, I'd have to close at 11. I had two hours where not much happened. You know, not much really goes on on Florida Avenue after 9 o'clock. And I would sit outside the gas station, and I would write <clears throat> love letters to Miss Gwen. We had recently gotten engaged at the drive-in theater, which is now where Staples is. And I'd write, I miss you, I miss you, I love you, I love you, I miss you, I miss you, I love you. I'm sure I wrote other stuff, but that's what I was saying. I miss you, I miss you, I'm sure at the gas station. But I would enclose in each letter the S&H green stamps from the night. She was off in New Jersey, and then I went back to school, and that fall, uh, we took those S&H green stamps, and we put them in a book. We did a lick em, stick em thing, and you had books of stamps, and then you'd go to the Redemption Center. It was a store, but instead of money, you gave them your books of stamps, and so we gave them our books of stamps, and we got a little grandfather's clock, and we redeemed it. We put it back into service, doing that for which it had been created. It sat on our uh, furniture for years. And that's what the psalmist is saying. God, rise up, be our help, and put us back into your service. But again, it's not about us. Redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Say loving kindness. I do want you to learn this word. It's my favorite Hebrew word. It's the word chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D. Chesed. Say it. Chesed. I want you to say it in Hebrew. Chesed. Here you go. Chesed. Chesed is a wonderful word. It's my favorite Hebrew word. It means loyal love. It's the word in Psalm 23 when the psalmist says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's the word for mercy. It's the word loyal love. It's the word that God uses for his people. Romans 8, But God demonstrates his loyal love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Dies for us. It's the word used in Lamentations 3, we get the greatest thy faithfulness line out of there. But Lamentations 3 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's the word hesed. Psalm 89 is a whole psalm about the hesed of God. In the last hour, somebody has a granddaughter named hesed. What a wonderful, wonderful word. And so, God, it's about you, and it's about your loving kindness. It's not about us. Now, Paul picks up this verse. The only place that I know of that Psalm 44 is quoted in the New Testament is in Romans 8. And Paul says, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through what? Him who loved us. Romans 8, great chapter. Romans 8 has in it in verse 28, 828. You need to know 828. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. doesn't say all things are good. There's going to be a fundraiser in your life that fails. There's going to be a child situation in your life that breaks your heart. There's going to be a health concern that you cannot seem to get over. There's going to be a battle that you've done everything you know to do, but God causes it to work for good if you're his child and you're called according to his purpose. And then Paul, in order to illustrate the point, quotes this psalm. You have sent us as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. <clears throat> Think about that. Sheep to be slaughtered. Think about sheep, how stupid they are. I mean, really, they just bat and poop, and all you can do with them is shave them and eat them. They have no purpose in life. But God calls us his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. You see, what do sheep need? Do sheep need helmets and swords and spears to go fight? Would look stupid. Sheep need a strong shepherd. 
And I think the point of the psalm is, hey, we've got the shepherd. He's a shepherd king. Jesus calls himself the true shepherd and the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And in reality, he says, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. The word there is more than conquer through Jesus who loves us. See, God may or may not take away the issue. I can tell you the end of the Sennacherib story. Sennacherib surrounds the city of Israel, and God sends his angel and kills 185 Assyrian soldiers, and Sennacherib leaves town with his tail between his legs. Well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? God may do that for us, but God's not obligated to do that for us. All God is obligated to do is show us his loyal love because he doesn't only want you to win, he wants you to be more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror, I think, is one who goes through the difficulty without the solution that everybody else is looking for. I spent some time yesterday with a man who lost a teenage daughter in a car accident when she was a young girl. They had done everything right for this girl, They loved her, they prayed with her, she loved Jesus, and she's with the Lord today. But in going, he asked me what I was preaching on. He said, well, you know, he said, when we lost our daughter, it was amazing because God took us through that awful time. And we miss our daughter awful, but we know we're going to see her again. And he had just come back from a missionary trip overseas, and he's getting ready to go on another missionary trip, and people come up to him and say, how can you go on missions trips and tell people about Christ when you've lost your daughter? He said, I think that's what it means to be more than a conqueror. God will someday give them their daughter back, but in the meantime, God is using him to lead people to Christ. See, it's great, he said, to know this, that when I go to God, God knows what it's like. God feels what it's like. God understands the pain of what it's like to lose a child. God had one perfect child, Jesus, and he loves us so much that he gave him for you and for me. And so the point is I can trust him. By way of application, two things. Number one, have you realized that it's not about you? It's not about me? In the Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren starts out with that phrase, it's not about you. That's so contrary to who I am. It's always about me. What do you mean it's not about me? Enough about you. Let's talk about me. No, it's not about me. It's about God and his glory and his plan. And God will take the awful stuff in my life and work it into a tapestry like a masculine for good. And at the end of my life, I'll be able to say, this is how God used that to benefit me and those around me for his glory and his purpose. Doesn't mean it's fun to go through everything. Doesn't say all things are good. Just understand it's not about me. Second, In a group like this, I know, because I've talked to some of you, there are some of you going through stuff right now that only God can get you through. And I want to pray for us, that if you are in the midst of a trial, whether it's at home, with a child, in your marriage, at your job, in your workplace, in your health, we need to commit ourselves to the sovereignty of God. And we need to allow God to be God and walk through the valley of the shadow with us. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the writer of this psalm. Thank you for his incredible beauty and majesty to build an altar and to lay his prayer requests out on top of it. And Father, we would do that now. We would bring to you our prayer requests. Some of us hurt in the deepest part of our heart. Some of us have a hole in our heart that only you can fill. 
Some of us have needs that we just don't understand how in the world they're going to be met. But we come to you and we say, Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. And I do pray, Father, for each of us here that you would show ourselves strong on your behalf. That as a church family, we might bear witness to the fact that God worked together for good those tough things that I had to go through. I'm reminded as we close with the phrase that Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, Jesus says. I have overcome the world.